Hi. Romans chapter 13 this morning. The book of Romans chapter 13. While you're turning there, a couple of reminders. Today is the last day uh, to get your information on our Oasis Business Connection. Uh, so if you have a business card or you have a business and you would like the church family to know about it so that you know they would know if they had something that you a service you provide, please get that information to us today. We'll keep updating that as time goes by. Uh, also, uh, Nathan Lamberth wanted me to announce, uh, I'm going to start announcing it today, even though it's not till Sunday, November the 2nd, that any of you that are interested in coming to their home after church that Sunday uh, for a potluck, they're going to provide the main sort of course and, and let you bring the sides and desserts and stuff. They want to have a meeting at their home, uh, which is actually is real close to Basha here, uh, about missions. Uh, I gathered a lot of you who were interested in the missions ministry a little while ago, and I think they want to have a meeting. They want to begin to to really develop the vision of our missions ministry and to see how more people can get involved with that. And so uh, that will be Sunday, November the 2nd. And if you need information of how to get in contact with Nathan to let him know that, uh, you can do that on our website. You can do that through the bulletin, his email address, and everything is on there. All right. Romans chapter 13. We've been talking about the worship of God, the will of God. We've been talking about our responsibility and obligations that we have towards each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And last week we talked about how to do relationships God's way rather than our way. Now today he's going to sort of continue along this. But he's going to end chapter 13, in a sense, with the main thing, if you will, the main theme that he wants to talk to us about. I'm not going to take a lot of time in the first two sections uh, from verse 1 through verse 7 and then verse 8 through verse 10. uh, But I am going to share a few things that I think are very foundational and important to us that a lot of Christians, I think either they've never heard before They have never grasped it before, and it's really an important truth that we need to share this morning. So in line with chapter 12 about our relationships with one another and and doing those relationships God's way, when, when Paul transitions into chapter 13, now he wants to talk to the Christian about being a good citizen. A good citizen of whatever country, whatever state, if you will, that we are in, we as Christians need to strive to be good citizens. Now, before I get more into this, I want to say this. These seven verses are obviously not exhaustive because no passage of Scripture, no chapter in the Bible is ever going to give us an exhaustive total view of the subject that's being talked about At that moment, in order to get the biblical, well-rounded view of all sides of something, we've got to go to different passages of scripture. But there's a reason why in these passages and chapters that he's just focusing maybe on one side of it. So I don't want you to think that as Paul talks to us, those of us say under governing authorities, 
about all of our responsibilities that somehow God has left those who are in authority off the hook. He hasn't. There are many places in the Bible that basically warns those in government authority, our governmental leaders, of their responsibility and how God's going to hold them accountable and how they better be treating the people underneath their authority right and all of that over and over again. But that's not where Paul's coming from today. Again, those are other passages. That's for another time and a place. Today, Paul wants to talk to the Roman Christians, Christians who are under the occupation and the power and the authority of the Roman Empire. And he is saying to them, look, I know you may not be in an opportune place. This isn't the perfect environment, maybe, that you're thinking or looking for. But what God wants to show us is that even when we're not placed in a perfect environment with perfect conditions that does not absolve ourselves of the responsibility of doing what's right, of doing God's will. In fact, most of the time, I think you and I will find throughout our life, we're we're not going to be in places of perfect conditions. Because God wants to show us that the reality of our faith is it can match whatever conditions we find ourselves in. And God wants to show others that in spite of the bad conditions you may be in, that people of faith and trust in him can thrive no matter what the circumstances or conditions. I mean, you think through the Bible. How many of these Bible characters that we know and the stories that we know ever operated in perfect conditions? Joseph, Daniel. I mean, you can go on and on throughout the Bible. New Testament, we're going through the book of Acts on Tuesday night. Not perfect conditions. But God is saying that what I give you and your relationship with me can rise above your conditions and circumstances. And you are responsible. I am responsible as a Christian to be a good citizen, no matter what the leadership looks like. No matter what the leadership is like, no matter how the leadership treats me, I have the obligation before God to place myself under that authority. Because God understands something that many times we have to be reminded of. If I am struggling to place myself under human authority that God has placed there, I will also struggle to place myself under His authority in my life. I will chase I, I, will, I will squirm. I will never get to a place where I will surrender and submit to God's authority if I can't learn to submit and surrender to human authority. Even though God is going to be perfect, still same thing. There are times in our life as Christians where God is doing things we don't understand. And he says, I still want you under my authority. I want you to trust me. And so he's saying, I know there are times, many times, as a citizen of a country or a state or whatever, where you're under leadership that's, it's not good. But you've got to learn to operate underneath that and trust me that I'm bigger than it all. Which is why he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except by God's appointment. And the authorities that exist have been instituted by God. This is huge. And this is the one part of this passage I wanted to point out to us as Christians. 
Do you realize that what the Bible is teaching us is that God is sovereign and that there is no leader in this world who is occupying the place of prime minister, dictator, president, you know, on and on that is not there if God didn't want them in that position. Now, a lot of Christians, they're like, that just blows them away. What do you mean? Well, let's face it. I mean, do do we think God is somehow surprised that they're in leadership? Like they sort of snuck in and God wakes up one day and goes, oh my goodness, I didn't see that coming. I, I didn't see that person gaining that kind of leadership and authority and power. No, God is sovereign. He's always in control. He rules. Then I know. Then a Christian's going to go, well, wait a minute. Why would God allow a bad leader then to be in authority? Doesn't God want us to have good leaders? Absolutely. Absolutely. But just like with his people Israel, if they don't want a good leader, then God will give us as nations and states and all kinds of governing authorities the leaders that we generally as a people deserve. Look at Israel again. Israel so bad wanted a king other than God, some human king, that they begged God, give us a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And they wanted Saul. God said, fine. You want Saul, you can have him. And look at what suffering they went under under his authority. See, Many times, the reason why God allows bad leaders to get to that position is because he wants to either purify his people or it's a judgment against the people of that nation or that country or that state because they have rejected God. They have turned their back on God and therefore God is going to give them a leader that they deserve at that time. And they will suffer under that leader. Because again, no leader, no political authority, no one ever comes to power in this world unless God allows it. Because he's in control. And ultimately, his plan and his will will be done. Now, obviously, again, many sides to this. Are we responsible as Christians to try to get good leadership? Absolutely. But the Bible gives us that prescription too. When my people, who are called by my name, will start humbling themselves and seeking my face and praying, then I, God, will hear from heaven. I will act. I will work. I can heal this land and I can restore it. But it starts with the heart of God's people. Are we as God's people, even in this country, truly running after God and making him the priority of our life? Or has our life become crowded with so many things that God isn't really that important anymore? And yet then we, we complain that we live in countries and nations around the world where we have bad leadership. God says it starts with my people. Then he goes on. 
and says in verse 2, the person who resists such authority actually resists the ordinance of God. Now again, folks, again, this is not all sides of this. So please don't come away from Romans 13 going, well, that's not right. or that's... You've got to go to other passages of Scripture for the whole exhaustive picture of what is happening here. He's just taking a slice out of the pie. He, hasn't, he is not going to talk to us today about what if the government asks us, forces us as Christians to do something that is against God's will. Well, if they force us, then obviously the biblical thing is ought to obey God rather than men. But if we live in, an, in a situation where the government is not forcing us to do something wrong, but they're allowing it, then we have to learn to exist within the law and try to change those laws in a lawful way rather than trying to be above the authority, you see. Work within the authority that God has placed. That's being a good citizen from God's perspective. For he says, rulers cause no fear for good conduct, but for bad. Now again, He's only talking about one side of it. Normally, down through history, that's the way it is. But nations and countries can get to the point where they do, because of bad leadership, punish good doers and reward evildoers. But again, that's not where he's coming from here. He says, so do good and you will receive its commendation. For it is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be in fear. For it does not bear the sword in vain. It is God's servant to administer retribution on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of the wrath of authorities, but also because of your conscience. He's saying, look, one of the reasons why God established government in the world was so that there wouldn't be anarchy and chaos. God is a God of order. And so one of the institutions that God established besides the family and besides the church was government. Simply in order to try to keep things in order in a society so that things don't end up out of order. Obviously, that doesn't always work. Especially when the government and the leaders aren't doing what they should be doing. But that was God's intent all along. And that's why he wants his people, even under Roman authority, even under any authority that has been there, to make sure that we place ourselves under that authority and that we strive to be good citizens. And then he talks about something we all love. For this reason, pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servant devoted to governing. Pay everyone what is owed. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is due, respect to whom respect is due, honor to whom honor is due. The greatest political statement that was ever made, and it's profound if you study it, meditate on it, and think about it, was the words that came out of Jesus' mouth when the authorities tried to trap him and he took a coin that had Caesar's inscription or insignia on it. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, but render to God the things that are God's. 
And if you think about what Jesus is saying, it is the most profound statement that's ever been made by any government and any governing authority. It was perfect. It's exactly the way God always intended for it to be. And let me say this. Those coins, just like today, might have the government inscription on it. But who does God say we were made in the image of? We were made in the image of God. His image is on us. And therefore, there is a line that the government should never cross. Some things are God's alone, you see. And Jesus pointed that out. Secondly, Paul says we should not only strive to be good citizens, we should strive to be good neighbors. In verse 8, he says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. Now, the main point I want to make here is that this phrase out of this verse is not telling us as Christians that it is wrong or sinful to ever borrow money. That's not what it's saying. Here's what it is saying. It is saying that if we do borrow something, we better have the intention and the wherewithal to always pay it back and pay it off. No Christian should ever take out a loan or assume some kind of debt if they take it out with the intent that I'm never going to pay this off. We as Christians should never take on any responsibility, any obligation that we can't fulfill and we know we can't fulfill it. That's what he's talking about here. And he's telling us here, the one debt, the one obligation you will never pay off no matter what, and we should never strive to, is love. He says that's the one obligation and responsibility we have to each other, and we will always have that responsibility and obligation. God will never, in a sense, let us off the hook from that responsibility and obligation. We always need to love each other and love our neighbor as God teaches us. Because he said, the one who loves his neighbor has actually fulfilled the law. All those things in the law really, he says, are summed up in just love each other. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. If there's any other commandment, it's summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be as attentive to others as you are to yourself. Because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is a fulfillment or fullness of God's law. So be a good citizen. Be a good neighbor. And then beginning in verse 11, he says, and do this. Literally in the Greek New Testament, the do is not even there. It's and this. And it is a... It's a device that was used in the Greek language to basically go back to the context and sweep everything that's been said up to this point forward and land it here because it's all part of what he's about ready to say. So, let me do that today. The and this then goes back to the beginning of chapter 12. And he's saying, look, in our worship of God, in our embracing the will of God, in our understanding our responsibility and obligation to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, and then even to how we do relationships God's way rather than our way, 
He says all of this, including what we talked about today, being a good citizen and being a good neighbor. He says all this now is swept into this because we know the time. He says all of these things should be priorities. We should be doing them because we know the time. The word know here is an intuitive knowledge. So I'm going to get a little ahead of myself, but I'll come back there in just a moment. So here's what Paul is teaching us. This is what God is teaching us. And it's found in other places of scripture. For instance, in the book of Ecclesiastes, it says God has placed eternity in our hearts when we were born. So within each of us here today, there's an internal clock that keeps running. And whether we pay attention to it or not, it's there. And we know it's intuitively there. It's whether we're going to pay attention to that internal clock or not. But that internal clock is always going. And what that internal clock is always telling us is that we don't have a lot of time on earth. That's what the internal clock is telling us. That's what the word time here means. This word time is not the Greek word chronos, where we get our word for, you know, a a time like minutes and seconds. It's a word, kairos, that was used to describe a limited and unique opportunity. So hear me of what God is saying here. He's not telling us as Christians that we should have this morbid preoccupation with death and dying. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is this, that Christians should continually be reminding ourselves that this life on earth really, really short. And that my earthly life is such a limited, unique opportunity. And that my life is a vapor that will appear for a short time and then be gone. As Moses wrote, teach us God to number our days or teach me to continually consider my mortality so that I can live wisely. It's not being preoccupied with death and dying. What it is being preoccupied with is my limited, unique opportunity that I have as a human being that God is giving me to live this day. Because I don't know how long I'm going to live. But I do know as a Christian this. That internal clock is constantly moving inside of me. And it's telling me, you don't have forever. Your, your life is going to end on earth. You've only got this much time. That's what he means when he says, when we talk about the worship of God and the will of God and our obligation and responsibility to others and how we should do relationships God's way rather than our way and being good citizens and being good neighbors, he's saying, and folks, when you consider this, consider above it all. That we've only got so much time. And so he goes on to say. And do this because we know the time that it is already the hour for us to awake from sleep. Using the phrase already the hour is talking about the urgency. What Paul is saying is if if our life, no matter how long we live, is so short, it's so limited in the opportunities that we have on this earth, then Paul says, 
Shouldn't there be a sense of urgency about the way we live our lives? And then he uses the word awake. The word means to stand up, to step up, to rise up, to stand forth. In other words, isn't it time that we stop sitting or lying down and we get up and we start being busy about the things that we know we should be doing and the things God has called us to? Because we know the time and that internal clock keeps going. And then the word sleep. The word sleep here in the New Testament speaks of spiritual apathy, lethargy, complacency, indifference. In other words, he's saying there's too many Christians who are not really understanding why God gave us that internal clock. That we're not going to live forever. That we're only here for a short time and that our opportunities to do things for God and for others is unique and limited to a certain season. And therefore, Paul is saying, does it really make sense for Christians to be so indifferent, so apathetic, so complacent about our lives and the way we live them and our relationships with one another and with God and our our church and everything? Isn't it time That we wake up, Paul says. For he says, our salvation is now nearer than when we became believers, which is sort of an obvious fact, but I think this is all obvious, Paul would say. And what he's speaking of here is the culmination of our salvation. In other words, Paul's saying, isn't the day that we're going to stand before Jesus and meet Jesus and go to heaven, isn't it closer now than it was when we became a Christian? Well, we would all say, well, duh. Of course it is. But Paul, I think, would say back to us, but are you living that way? Are you living as if your glorification and your going into heaven and your eternal existence and your meeting Jesus and you're reunited with all these believers of all the ages, are you really living as if that's closer now than it was when you became a believer? Because I think Paul would say to a lot of believers throughout history, then why is it that so many Christians start out their Christian life on fire for God? Man, when they become a Christian, they're just, they can't get enough of church and service and ministry and the Bible and prayer and all that. And then over time, that fire begins to go out and it wanes. Why is that if Christians really did buy into what the Bible's teaching here. Because what God would say is, every day that goes by is one day closer to eternity for you. Are you keeping that in mind as you live your life and make your choices and decisions? For he says, the night has advanced toward dawn. The spiritual blindness and darkness of this world is moving forward to its final stages. And the day, thank God, is near. The day of Christ, the day of His return is approaching quickly. So then, we must lay aside the works of darkness and put on the weapons of light. Can I tell you, as I studied this years ago, actually for the first time, I got really excited about verse 12. Because it it brought something to my attention that I never really had seen before in Scripture. This phrase, weapons of light, 
You could also translate it God suit. In other words, Paul is saying, sink down into your God suit. He's telling us, God gives every Christian a God suit that literally is suitable for the season of history that we live in. The day and age. So that as long as we sink down into that God suit, we got everything that we need in that God suit to face whatever's going to come at us. And when you think about this, this does sort of get into that, you know, superhero and all that realm that obviously is really popular today. The, you know, the, the top grossing movies are now all the superhero movies. And Americans especially, as well as people around the world, are fascinated when these, you know, people can do supernatural, superhuman things. And they've got superhuman powers and stuff. And a lot of times it comes from the suit that they wear. They got everything on that suit to be able to, you know, beat the enemy and and do what's right and all of that. What, What Paul's saying is, many times as Christians, we don't even give it a thought. We have a God suit. We have these supernatural resources, these weapons of light that God has placed within us and on us. And Paul's saying, just sink down into your God suit and you'll be able to face whatever challenges and obstacles are going to come your way. He says, let us live decently as in the daytime. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in discord and jealousy. Instead, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourself with Jesus. Envelop yourself with Jesus. Saturate yourself with Jesus. In fact, here's a great analogy for us who live in the desert. In a sense, what he's saying here in verse 14 is make sure as a Christian that you always stay spiritually hydrated. Don't get spiritually dehydrated. Because we all know, living here, how we begin to feel and how we don't function, obviously, near at our optimal level whenever we allow our bodies to physically start to dehydrate. And Paul's saying the same thing is true for a Christian. There's too many spiritually dehydrated Christians. They're not coming to that river of water of life that can just, you know, feed them and nourish them and and quench their thirst every day. And they're not getting to a church regularly where they can be nourished and fed and, and their thirst can be quenched. They're trying to live their life and yet they're always spiritually dehydrated. They're always running from behind, trying to catch up, rather than making sure they've got more than enough. Because like we see even here in the valley, and we see it every year, there are people that don't front load even enough hydration into their system, and then they try to make some big challenge like a hike up some mountain, and they get halfway up, and then someone has to rescue them. And see, for us in life, we don't know when those mountains or challenges are coming. 
So that's why we need to always stay spiritually hydrated. Because someday we could wake up and there could be some challenge in front of us and there's no way we're going to make it up that mountain spiritually. Because we haven't been keeping ourselves hydrated by putting on the Lord Jesus and enveloping ourselves and saturating ourselves with Jesus Christ. And then he says, make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. The word provision here means a plan ahead of time. Don't try to plan something ahead of time to to soothe or satisfy your flesh. If you're going to plan something, plan how you're going to grow spiritually. Strategize how you're going to to stay close to the Lord. We're going to talk more about that Tuesday in our study of the book of Acts. Here's what Paul wants to leave with us today. To know the time. The limited, unique opportunities we have on earth. And can I say a few words here? What Paul is not saying is that we approach life with the mentality of, I spend my time doing things. He wants us to learn as Christians to invest in eternity. See, there's a difference. I can choose to be involved in things that just spend my time or I can choose to invest in eternity. And Paul's saying too many Christians just go through life spending time doing things rather than investing in eternity. He says, that's not knowing the time. Let me share another one. I believe this passage is also teaching this. That God wants me to learn and grow to a point where I'm willing to give up what is good to experience God's best. Let me repeat that. I shared that at our marriage retreat this weekend. God wants me to get to a place with Him where I am willing to give up what's good to experience God's best. That's knowing the time. And then this, I believe with all my heart that the greatest regrets that we will have as Christians when we get to heaven will not be our mistakes and failures. Our greatest regrets will be the opportunities that we failed to seize while we were here. The things that we could have been a part of, we could have done And whether it was just complacency or indifference or fear or whatever was motivating us not to do something, that opportunity, as Paul says, quickly goes by. In fact, what Paul's trying to teach us is there's opportunities that are whizzing by us all the time. And we got to seize it while it's there. Because if we don't, if we don't live that way, Those opportunities are gone. Those days that we're just spending time rather than investing in eternity, we can't get those days back. God's not going to go, Jeff, you know, you sort of wasted a week here. So you know what, Jeff, I'm going to add a week to your life. You know, you, you, no, that doesn't work that way. Once that day, that week, that hour is gone, it's gone. We can never recover it. That's why Paul is telling all of us 
to know the time. To know the time. Let me share with you something even from this week in my own life. I was part of seeing God do some amazing things this week. Just this week. And the only reason I saw God do some amazing things is because I took some opportunities that were out there. Now, I'm not saying I always have done that. But what I'm saying is this. There's a direct correlation in our lives between seeing God do something in my life and seizing the opportunities that are out there for me to to do, to get involved, to be with others, whatever. If I don't take those opportunities, then I'm missing out on what God could do and what I could see God do. Because instead of me living my life intentionally and with purpose, setting life a certain way, I'm just letting life happen and just reacting to it. Whatever comes, I'm just, I'm just trying to deal with whatever comes. Rather than being proactive and intentional and purposeful and saying, this is the course that I believe God wants me to set my life on, and that's where I go. That's knowing the time. Because Paul is saying to all of us, whether we pay attention to it or not, whether we consider it or not, whether we, whether we ever think about it or not, God has placed this clock inside of us. And the hands of that clock are always moving. And that clock is telling us every hour of every day, you don't have forever. We're not going to live forever on this earth. We've got a limited, unique opportunity. And once that earthly life is gone, we don't get to come back and do earthly life over again. We get one earthly life. That's it. One. I hate to break the news to those that believe in reincarnation, but it's not true. You don't get to live your life one way and then come back as something else and keep repeating that. That's not the way God designed it. God designed it this way. I give you one life. One life. One opportunity to go through this life. And when that's done, it's done. The only thing left is eternity. Can't come back and recapture those minutes and hours, those opportunities, those relationships. Can't do it. Because then we'll be on to something else. So Paul is saying to us, do we know the time? God has given us that intuitive knowledge as Christians that we should know the time. But are we living our lives as if we know the time? Or are we living in such a way it's like, ah, I got time. We keep putting things off. We keep procrastinating. We keep making excuses like, well, I'll get to it when the conditions are better. When those perfect conditions show up. And what Paul has already told us is, if we're waiting around for the perfect conditions to do this or that, we'll never do anything in life. Because I've been alive for 53 years. A little bit longer than some of you and a little bit less than some of you. But even after 53 years, I can say from my own life, 
there have been very few days that have been perfect conditions in my life. But God didn't come to me and go, oh, Jeff, well, it's not very perfect. Okay, then you just lay in bed and pull the covers over your head and it'll be okay. No. God says, stand up, Jeff, and do what you need to do. Because the conditions will never be perfect. And this life is going to be gone. And you're going to be with me for all of eternity. Let's pray. God, would there be even one person here today that would say, God, I'm... I'm going to change some things in my life because I I was confronted once more with the brevity of life. I'm realizing that many times in life the choices, especially for the Christian, isn't between the obvious of choosing right from wrong and good from evil, it's many times what's good and what's best. And God wants us to learn, because we know the time, not to settle in our lives for what's good, but to run after what's best. And can I say this? That many times our greatest opportunities that we have in life will come through our greatest challenges, our greatest difficulties, our greatest trials, our greatest pain. If we're willing to look for those opportunities in those seasons. God, use this message to reawaken us as your people and to rise up, to step up, to stand up and to seize the day, to seize this hour, to seize these moments that one day, Lord, will so quickly go by and will never return. Use this passage, God, to inspire and motivate us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.